In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. At the brink of day, on the brink of the Roman Empire, among people who found themselves on the brink of their society, at the brink of everything, the heart of reality had just throbbed. God's eternal and loving yes to creation reverberated louder than our loudest no. Jesus had conquered sin and death, and with them, every excuse they give us for acting as though they get the last word. But here we find a surprising sight. Instead of dancing in the streets and saying, the Lord is risen, or jumping up and saying, I believe, like I know we wanted to do after last week's rousing sermon by Father Yoder, the risen Lord's disciples just head home. And that day turned out not to be an everlasting morning. The sun still set. And at the brink of night, at the brink of the empire, among people on the brink and therefore in direst need of the good news, the newly risen Lord found his disciples cowering in fear behind locked doors and locked hearts. It was their stories that kept them behind a locked door that night. From their vantage point, this whole Jesus thing had really been a bit of a flop. They thought they were signing up for a new kingdom, and all they got were a few miracles and a crucified rebel with a crown of thorns. And they were the suckers who got taken in by it all. They believed they had good reasons to fear their fellow citizens that night, Their brinksmanship was over. Their hopes were dashed. They had little left but to wait until the uproar died and go back to Galilee and take up fishing again. Failures still, but at least failing at something they knew. But it's even worse than they feared. Peter and John say the body wasn't there this morning. And Mary of Magdala says she encountered the risen Lord. This same man they had denied and quietly left when the going got tough. He had said all that stuff about coming back, so maybe we'd better lock the door, because he might come back and have a word with us. It was their narrative of failure and fear that kept them behind the locked door on that first Easter day. And then there's Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, but I think this is a bit of a a misnomer. And that Caravaggio painting of Thomas putting his finger into the side of of Jesus' side where the wound is reflects more of the epistemological controversies of early modernity, all of the the crises about how we know stuff, uh, more than it reflects the uh, narrative crises of, of first century Jews and Christians. I think really we should think of him as grieving Thomas. Thomas, I imagine, would have resonated with Frank McCourt, that great Irish memoirist who recalled of his childhood in the 1930s 
that the priests at his school were always telling him he needed to grow up and die for the Catholic Church. And then he would go home, and his father was singing Irish ballads and telling him he needs to grow up and die for Ireland. And at the end of the day, little Frankie had no idea if he was supposed to die for Ireland or for the church. He just knew he needed to die for something. And so too with Thomas. It was Thomas, the courageous pessimist, who first suggested to the disciples that they all go with Jesus to Jerusalem so they can die with him. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't really understand why Jesus was to die or why he would die with him. He just knew he needed to go and die for something. He knew his narrative should end with his suffering the glorious death of a tragic hero. And then Jesus went and died without him, leaving Thomas to suffer survival. Thomas was a man in deep grief. And as if this weren't bad enough, then the worst thing of all happened. Jesus came back and ruined the whole thing, ruined this whole courageously pessimistic narrative that he had. Amid his grief, Thomas was confronted with something too good to be true. His incredulity wasn't due to skepticism. It was due to the fact that he had locked his heart away behind a story that could only end joylessly. It can be a frightful thing to embrace joy because it can be unnerving to give up on the grievous Stories we tell ourselves in order to inoculate ourselves against life. The sad stories in which we trick ourselves into thinking that all is lost and it's lost forever. That we'll never have friends like those we left behind before a big move. Or that I'll never find that team or that group or those colleagues or that troop where I really gel. That our marriage failed and I'll never be happy again. That my loved one died, and I'll never not writhe in angry grief. That I'll never quite be able to hang on to sobriety. That I didn't get this promotion or that job, and I will die the failure I knew I was. Or the stories that can keep Easter joy locked away are maybe the ones that we tell ourselves when we compulsively check the news these days. We're on the brink of world war, the brink of civil war, the brink of environmental and economic collapse until all we have left is to clutch tightly to an old, primordial, godless story about the inevitability and final victory of chaos, of sin, of death. And like grieving Thomas, we can't Embrace the Easter joy at the core of our faith. The heart of reality throbbed that morning, as it throbs even now, as Jesus conquered with love all those forces that threaten us with the brink of our existence. But for the time being, the disciples were still giving sin and death the last lame word behind locked doors and locked hearts. But my friends, if the gates of hell 
couldn't keep our Savior down. Neither can any of our fallen narratives. The risen, victorious Jesus enters all those places where we try to lock ourselves away. And he does have a word with his disciples. He does have a word with us. But it's not a word of comeuppance or of fear or of shame or failure. His word is shalom. Peace be unto you. He says it twice. The deep peace that ordered the chaos of the surging waters in creation, that same peace now orders the turmoil of angst-filled hearts. The disciples and we become the elemental stuff of the new creation inaugurated by the resurrection and the long-winded tales we tell ourselves about sin and death and failure and fear finally run out of air, and Christ breathes into the disciples and us a new breath, a second wind, the Holy Spirit that gives them and us new life, just as God breathed life into Adam. We are a new creation, made fresh in the image of a crucified and victoriously risen Savior. And if you believe that you are a new creation, then you'll want to embrace the new task we have been given, just as the first creation included a task to reflect God's image back out into creation. So to hear the new creation includes a new task. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I send you. They and we are called to unlock our door and our hearts as we are sent into the wide world to carry out the ministry of God's wide mercy, the ministry of reconciliation in a divided world. This early post-resurrection gathering of scared disciples is an image of the church, of us, as the place of new creation. This is a message for all of us who celebrated Easter last week only to find that the sun still set on that glorious day. And come Monday came to the grief, the loneliness, the questions, the struggles, the doubts, the committee meetings. But the good news for you and for me is that what Jesus was doing, Jesus is still doing. Jesus is still risen and still meets those of us on the brink who gather together in his name. The church isn't a place just for those who have already worked through all of their questions and doubts and problems and failures and fears. It's a place of healing for those who bring their questions and their failed narratives to Jesus trusting that he can handle them. It's the place where we bring all of this with us as so much elemental stuff to meet the risen Lord and await the word of new creation, peace. What Jesus was doing, Jesus is still doing. 
He still breathes the refreshing wind of the Spirit across the face of the church, generating new life where we see only death. And this doesn't mean that now we get to sit in our hands and wait for heaven. That's not what we celebrate when we celebrate Easter. Easter means that we've had an hors d'oeuvre for the great feast of God's kingdom. And one day, it'll all be consummated with the return of the Lord and his new creation. But until then, we've got work to do, a feast to prepare for as we join him in the ministry of reconciliation. What Jesus was doing, Jesus is still doing. He sends his disciples, sends us out into the world, out from behind every locked door and every locked heart, out from every sad narrative of sin and death, out to every brink, to every one, to show them that the divine heart that throbbed then throbs even now, that the sun might still set, but Jesus died and now is risen, that God's resounding yes to us reverberates louder than our loudest no to him. He still calls us to go forth in the name of Christ. Alleluia. Alleluia. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.